Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego Ani Buju. Quay Nin Deluisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time focusing on revitalizing our cultures, languages, traditions, customs, practices, and laws. But it's also about living and asserting and defending our sovereignty and protecting our people all over Turtle Island. And today we're really lucky to have Cindy Blackstock, one of my heroes, back on this podcast. And for the few people who don't know her, Dr. Cindy Blackstock is a member of the Gitsan First Nation and she has more than 25 years of social work experience, but also experience advocating and defending the rights of uh, First Nations kids. And some of you might recall that I had Cindy on this podcast before in a three-part series about six months ago where she gave us all the background that uh, has led up to the case of uh, at this Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision which found that Canada was racially discriminating against First Nation kids in care and ordered them to stop. Um, but since then, and so many of you have listened to her podcast and watched her on YouTube, you've asked me to have her back because there's been some developments. Um, since we had her here, there's been more non-compliance orders, but also there's been an order for compensation. Canada has appealed and everybody has a whole bunch of questions because Social media is so confusing. There's a bunch of different messages going around. And um, I know that people want to get this clarified. And I'm really thankful that Cindy, somehow, Cindy and Spirit Bear, who have a busier schedule <laughs> than any bear I know, have found the time to come and talk to us about a couple things. One, this uh, appeal uh, by the federal government of the compensation order, but also about generally some concerns around Bill C-92, which, which was the federal legislation that has passed around First Nation um, or Indigenous child welfare. So welcome back to the show, Cindy. I feel like I should call you Dr. 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 Cindy for all of the honorary degrees that you and Spirit Bear have received, but they're well-deserved and Thank you for the work that you're doing and for coming back to help us sort all this mess out. Oh, it's really good to be back here. And all those awards really are acknowledgement of all the people throughout the generations. And I want to pay a special acknowledgement to the ancestors who really uh, set the ground that those of us who are able to work in community with others to try and make the lives of First Nations children a little brighter, they set the ground for us to stand on. Yeah, exactly. And today is also a very important day, too, because we're recording this on Remembrance Day and we had so many Indigenous uh, veterans and not just the veterans, but all the families that went around supporting those veterans and the children and grandchildren of those veterans who uh, were not properly treated when they returned. And I think when we remember that, we have to remember, you know, the legacy on the families. Yeah, my own uncle and aunt uh, served in both the Canadian military and in the U.S. military in the Second World War. And neither of them ever got the veterans' benefits that they, de they, they deserved. My uncle died before the remedies were put in place that provided some measure of justice. And he wasn't alone in that. Many, many other veterans have. So, uh, you know, I really uh, want to give a shout out to all veterans, mm -hmm. their families, and their descendants um, for um, really having done a service to all of us, regardless of whether you're First Nations or not. 
Yeah, exactly. And um, so we're here, you know, you're here by special request. Lots of people are confused about what's happening. The last time we talked to you, you gave us, you know, a really detailed history of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case. But I'm wondering for those who are just tuning in for the first time, maybe you could give a be like a brief background about what is this case and, and what's involved in it. Sure. So a lot of your listeners already know that the federal government funds all public services on reserve, whereas the provinces and territories fund it for everybody else. And going back to Confederation, the federal government has dramatically underfunded everything on reserve. They have done that consciously. They knew that they were underfunding. They knew that underfunding was linked to the hardship of children, but also to other nation members who happened to be resident on reserve. As early as 112 years ago, Canada knew that its inequalities in healthcare were actually resulting in the deaths of children in residential schools in preventable ways. So um, we entered uh, into the scene in about the late 1990s when First Nations child welfare agencies were saying, we're getting a lot less uh, to be able to support families dealing with this multi-generational trauma of residential schools. And as a result, we're seeing kids going into care that we probably could help stabilize in their families if the federal government funded those services. So we worked with the federal government for 12 years. Uh, that would be the Assembly of First Nations, the Caring Society, and many First Nations experts across the country documented the problem, documented solutions. Federal government writes to us, says, good job, we need another review. And nothing changed for the kids. And during that time, like we saw a graph from Indian Affairs, it really was a turning point for me. We're at the, during the time we sat at that table, the number of First Nations children going into care rose 71.5%. So we had to do something. So the Assembly of First Nations, under authority of all the chiefs and the Caring Society, joined together and filed a human rights complaint in 2007, according to the Canadian Human Rights Act. And what it, we basically said is that their failure to implement Jordan's principle and these inequities in child welfare were racially discriminatory. So since that time, the federal government knew that this compensation thing might come to a head one day because the act they passed in Parliament says that if you're found to have discriminated against a victim of discrimination, that person is uh, can receive up to $20,000. And then there's another section of the act that says if that discrimination was what they call willful and reckless, that means that really you knew about it. You had the resources to fix it and you chose not to do anything about it. Well, in that circumstances, that same victim can get another up to $20,000. So uh, Canada fought this case tooth and nail, uh, but we finally got the final arguments in 2014. And Canada's first official position on compensation comes out then. They say, we don't owe these victims anything because we're not discriminating against them. This whole case should be tossed out. Well, it wasn't tossed out. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found two years later that Canada was racially discriminating against these kids. But they really wanted to put all their efforts towards remediating the discrimination. And then they would come back to dealing with the compensation issue later. So it surfaced again about a year and a half ago when we started reaching out to the Fed saying, let's sit down and see if we can settle this, right? Let's not make this generation of kids fight for their money. Let's just, you know, do the right thing. They refused. So we had a mini trial on this in April and the Fed said, we don't owe these victims anything. And their rationale was that this is a systemic case. And yes, they were found to be discriminating, but 
there, they said there was no real evidence of individual harm. Had we wanted individual victims to get compensation, we ought to have had the children and their families testify to that, they said. I was gobsmacked. Like, I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine, Pam, us going out and getting five and six-year-olds and putting them on the stand to explain what it's like to be in foster care? Or and devastated was, uh, parents? It was outrageous. But And I want you, your listeners to understand, this is well before the election, early 2019. So we argued, of course, that these victims did deserve to get compensated, not only compensated, but to the maximum amount of $40,000 each. The AFN also made similar arguments. The tribunal eventually rules on this on September of 2019. They find, yes, Canada is willfully and recklessly discriminating against these kids. And that that discrimination, that willful and reckless is still ongoing. And that to me is the most important thing I want everybody to know is it's still ongoing. So when I hear the federal government say, oh, we apologize for past mistakes. This is not the past. Yes. Still going on. We, we actually have more orders in front of the tribunal to try and get the feds to, to do, fulfill their responsibilities. So they ordered the federal government to do one thing in the interim. They said, okay, we want you to work with the Caring Society and the Assembly of First Nations on a process to distribute these funds. And then report back to us on September 10th in order to do that. So the AFN and the Caring Society worked really hard. We, we actually brought together youth in care from all over Canada to advise us. Uh, we've been working on getting financial supports for families who may need that kind of advice. Uh, we've been looking at how do we identify the victims, get mental health supports for victims, a whole array of things. Um, but Canada doesn't appoint anyone to come talk to us. So we're just continuing to work. And then the election gets called. And we hear from the, we start hearing these confusing messages from the prime minister and others saying, oh, we wanna pay compensation. Okay, well, why aren't they appointing anyone to talk to us, right? Where are these people? And then um, they file a judicial review application on October 4th. And in that application, they want two things. One is they want to put the tribunal's order on hold to stay it, which basically puts it on hold until their judicial review is heard. Judicial review is like an appeal. <laughs> um, and what they want there is a complete quash of any financial compensation. It doesn't say we want more time to get this right. It doesn't say we want more time to talk to partners. It says we want a complete financial quash of the order. Meanwhile, we have still the prime minister in these debates saying we support compensation. And then it turns out that although the Fed said we can't talk to the Caring Society and AFN because of the election now, that Minister Bennett was out talking to people, um, to First Nations leaders, about compensation. So she clearly had time to talk to everybody else, but was unwilling to talk to us. And she says, um, kind of in a shocking fashion to me, she says, we don't want to talk to organizations like the yes. Parent Society and AFN. We want to talk to the victims. And I'm thinking, you have just been found as a government to be willfully and recklessly ongoing discriminating against these children and their families. And you are applying for a complete quash of financial compensation. And yet you say you have a right to sit down and talk to these people about what? 
So anyway, this all goes on. The election happens. And then um, we have a federal court date because the federal court has to decide how the paperwork is going to be handled and when the hearings are. And they had something called a case management. And this is like four days after the election, I think three or four days. And that was Canada's first opportunity to do what the prime minister said, which was pay compensation. So they could have pulled their application, but they didn't. They, their position remains unchanged. And so right now, uh, we are going to be cross-examining Canada's witness who swore an affidavit saying, really, there's irrevocable harm if this money is paid. Not to the victims, but to Canada. <laughs> We're going to have to hire all these people to distribute these monies, and it's going to cost us a lot of money, and we may not get it back. Meanwhile, we have these children and these families who've already been victimized. And as I point out in my responding affidavit, I said, in some cases, tragically, those children are dying. And we know that from the Aboriginal People's Television Network report mm -hmm. that found uh, dozens of children had died during the time when Canada was not complying with that 2016 order. And just as a matter of course, we have children, young people, and adult victims who are also dying of natural causes or dying of trauma with suicide. So um, we cross-examined Canada's witness this week, and then we're going to trial on this stay application on the 25th and 26th of November. It, it, it's incomprehensible to me that the federal government would consider the payment of compensation as irrevocable harm for the federal government, whose the source of their wealth is Indigenous lands and resources, but yet the death of a small child in foster care or the suicide of a teen who's abused in foster care is not irrevocable because money can always be paid back. Money can always be compensated in some other way. Money is just money, but lives, like the loss of a life or the harm in a life, that's irrevocable, even with the compensation. I mean, I know 40,000 sounds like a lot to people, but to lives lost, to abuse suffered, to like you say, millions of nights away from home and loss of language and culture, that's the part that's irrevocable. And right. I, I would find it hard to imagine that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal is going to be able to compare those two types of irrevocable harm and say, well, yes, the poor feds. Right. And the tribunal's already rejected those arguments. Canada made those arguments uh, back in April. And the tribunal said, no, the, the, the important victims here is not Canada. Canada mm -hmm. is the perpetrator of the discrimination. It's the children and the families who have been harmed in this way. And they actually lament the fact, the tribunal does, that the maximum they can give is $40,000. But that's all they can do under the Act. And the other important thing for people to know is that in no way rece receiving human rights damages under the Canadian Human Rights Act is not a class action. And I know we're all more familiar with class actions. Mm -hmm. That's what gave rise to residential schools and the 60s scoop. That's mm -hmm. something separate from this. This is a special penalty only allowed for under this act. And it doesn't mean that these children and families can't in turn benefit from a class action or indeed launch their own individual civil suit against Canada. Those two things uh, can go together. Well, that's an important 
you know, distinguishment because most people don't know. I mean, even I don't know all of the legalities and I'm a lawyer of what happens at Canadian human rights tribunals versus federal courts, provincial courts, all the civil system, because I don't, I'm not involved in litigation. So it's, it's really about clarifying all of this because, you know, people are th saying, oh, well, if if we support this, then we can't do a class action. But so you just made an important clarification or, well, the federal government said they're already negotiating compensation, so we don't have to do this. Like to know that that's not the case, to know that on the record before the tribunal, they're saying, no, we want to quash the order. And for people who don't know what quash means, that's just like, completely eliminate it, delete it, void it. It doesn't exist anymore. There is no order. And um, I think that's part of the problem with the media. You've got a whole bunch of political talking points that yeah. sound good. Well, of course, we support kids in compensation. But then you have what they're really doing that most people don't know, except for the people that are sitting in the courtroom. And that's why so many people wanted to have you here to clarify what exactly is happening. Like, I didn't know that... Canada didn't send a representative to actually work out the process before the September. Um, yeah, like that's that's incredible. So that how can they with in good faith go back to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and say, we tried, we couldn't come up with a solution. And now we're applying for this to give us more time when they didn't even try. They didn't even try. And uh, the other important point is we did try and we will make that December 10th deadline. And uh, the Caring Society has two full-time employees and a bunch of amazing part-time employees. Um, and if we're able to do it, an organization the size of the Government of Canada oh. should have been able to pull this off, especially because they are a repeat offender when it comes to First Nations kids. They've done this before with residential schools in the mm -hmm. 60s. So it's not as if this is a brand new scenario for them about how to distribute uh, damages. They already know how to do that. They've done it before. And so this should, and this did not sneak up on them. They've known about this case for, well, pretty much 13 years now. The other important thing to know is there is a class action that was filed by Xavier Musham, who is a First Nations Youth in Care, and Marina Beadle, who many of you may remember was that courageous elder and mom who took Canada to court in 2013 and said that you need to provide my son with Jordan's principal services. And the court agreed. Uh, so she's also part of this class action. It has not been certified, and Canada refuses to certify it, right? So Canada has not consented to certifying the class action. So even if they said, okay, well, we don't want to deal with the Caring Society and AFN, the tribunal, we're going to go over here and deal with the class action, which is not something they can do because they, there's a legal order in front of them from the tribunal. But let's just say, for sake of argument, that's what they want to do. They go over there. Why wouldn't they certify that class action? Like they're so arguing against that. They're saying no all the way around. They're all saying the no around. in the bureaucratic decisions that they make to underfund, knowing what the consequences are going to be. They're saying no once they have the order at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. And then for the class action, they're saying no. So it seems to be that what the the theme here is just we don't care and we're going to keep racially discriminating against these kids even if it means they lose their childhood even if it means they you know suffer tragic premature deaths and that's the part that's 
so profoundly difficult, I think, for so many people to understand that people are making these conscious decisions. It's not like it's a piece of paper that people are blindly following. There's nothing in the Indian Act that says Canada must discriminate against kids or Canada must underfund or like there's no law that says you must do these terrible things. In fact, all of Canadian laws say you can't do it. Yeah. Like they're breaking their own laws in order to racially discriminate against kids. And then they use this public language to confuse everybody. They say, oh, it's complicated. Well, they do it for every other kid. Every other kid gets you treated equally in public services. There's no, if you're this color or if you're from this religion, you don't get services. That yeah. only, they single out First Nations kids for that. Um, and they also say, well, First Nations live in these far-flung areas. Well, actually, this racial discrimination happens to First Nations right proximal to urban centers. I used to work in the Squamish Nation right in North Vancouver, and that discrimination applied to those kids just across the street from North Vancouver. So the federal government, I think, is woven for the public this narrative that it's a good guy. And it's not being appreciated or thanked by First Nations for all the good first steps it's taken. And it relies on that narrative to obscure the reality, which is it is choosing to racially discriminate against children. It's choosing to not come into compliance with now 10 legal orders by the tribunal since 2016. It knows as a matter of legal fact that its discrimination has been linked to the deaths of some children and hundreds, if not thousands, of unnecessary family separations. And yet it continues to try to weave this narrative with the public that, oh, we acknowledge we want to pay some compensation. And they try that you just, they rely on the public not looking past that. They yeah. don't want anyone to look past that, that, that image that they create. And I invite Canadians, especially those of you who are skeptical about what I'm saying, I encourage skepticism. It's a good thing. Come to the mm -hmm. hearing, listen to the government argue. It's the 25th and 26th. It's open to the public. You don't have to rely on me. You can listen for yourself and see what the government of Canada is going to do at that hearing. Yeah, I, you know, I often thought, like, what I really like about how um, you've engaged in this is that you invite kids to come to these oh. hearings and you invite the public and you try to publicize it because, you know, we've been in different forums, like Sharon McIver and I have been at the UN or the Inter-American Commission, and we all always said, if the public could hear what the federal government was actually saying that, no, those human rights don't apply in Canada. Yeah, we signed the treaty, but they don't apply in Canada. Or we can't end gender discrimination against Indigenous women and girls. It's too complicated. It's too political. First Nations might not all agree. And so they use that as an excuse to purposely continue to discriminate, whatever it is. It could be against women. It could be against kids. And it's, I often thought that the solution would be if all of that stuff was just broadcast, like every Canadian had to, had to hear that, then their political talking points would probably hold a little less power or well, a little I, less influence. I think you're right on that. And I think that's where I'm so, uh, I've been generally really pleased with the media coverage around this case. Uh, because the mainstream media hasn't bought into this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 
statement by Trudeau that uh, compensation is is looking. They've looked at the legal record. They can see and read for themselves that that's not what they're saying in the court system. And I, way back, and this is a shout out to APTN and our Aboriginal media, because way back in 2009, the Aboriginal People's Television Network applied to cover these tribunal hearings gavel to gavel. Uh, they had to fight for it in federal court. But ever since then, and this is really important for all the children and all the families who are affected by this discrimination, all those hearings are taped. You will never have to go back and try and hear public servants say, well, that's not what we said at that tribunal. They're all on TV. And the APTN has applied to tape this set of hearings in federal court too and I'm hopeful that they will be able to do it because I really want to be accountable as a caring society mm -hmm. to all those kids and communities out there. I know they're not my kids, they're the nation's kids, they're the family's kids and I want people to be able to see what we're saying and see what we're doing and hold us accountable. I also want them to be able to do that for the government of Canada and the other parties too. Um, so for those people who can't come to Ottawa, um, I'm very hopeful that APTN will be able to film it and you'll be able to watch it on APTN News and the National Film Board's also, uh, the great Ellen Isabomsawin, who we both love <laughs> dearly. Uh, so she has also applied to be able to film it. So, it's so what, what is the next step then? It's this hearing on the stay, whether or not to have the stay? Yeah, so that happens on the 25th, 26th. That's just okay. the pause, the order. So that Canada is trying not to have to make any submissions on December 10th to the tribunal on the process of the uh, of the compensation. So we're arguing that, no, they shouldn't get a stay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I expect you would know more than me because you're actually, you got all the legal credentials that I don't have. But I would think the federal court's going to rule on that fairly quickly. Uh, because if they wait until after December 10th, well, they're going to have to file anyway. So it moots out what Canada is asking for. Then we're going to have the dates for the judicial review where Canada is going to argue we don't owe these people any money. This is a systemic complaint. And yes, and normally they'll say things like, well, well, this isn't the proper forum to discuss compensation. <laughs> well, there's another forum, but they never say what that other forum is. Right? <laughs> so I think we can all look forward to that. I, I'm at a point now where I think I could argue Canada's case with the what they've said in the past, but oh, I don't. Sure, you I could do it. <laughs> um, okay, and, so and, so then, so you've got the stay, and then the December 10th, and then what happens after that? What happens after that is the dates for the judicial review. So I'm go uh, we're on schedule to file our submissions on the 10th. Okay. And uh, we'll put those up on FN Witness. We have this whole website where the documents right. are. So uh, people who are interested can go and read all of those documents. You can even read all the documents leading up to this day. And then the tribunal will make a decision on the basis of those December 10th uh, submissions about what the process should be for the distribution of that money. Not the amount, they've already decided it's the maximum amount. Not the number of people who are gonna get help because that's also been recognized. All they wanna know is the process and then they're gonna issue an order of the process and that's when Canada needs to start writing checks. But all of this could be thrown sideways if the judicial review is granted. Right. So if the judicial review is granted, then what happens? Then we appeal it. So oh, what that, okay. 
is that Canada was successful in arguing that they don't owe these victims anything. And um, I couldn't live with that. Um, and no. three cheers to our great legal counselor who were arguing this pro bono for us. Um, and they're doing it because they care so much about these kids and care so much about justice. Uh, but we're committed to seeing this all the way to the Supreme Court if we need to for these families. Um, I don't want to see them victimized again no. in Canada. And Is there so anything that Canadians can do to help to support all of this litigation and and the advocacy and information like is there something that because i know canadians always ask once yeah. they hear about this oh, i can't believe this is happening what can i do what can right. they do well first of all we have seven free ways for everybody to make a difference on our website fncaringsociety.com they can also write to their member of parliament and indeed to the prime minister and say this does not represent my values as a person, as a citizen of this nation, I do not agree with fighting against First Nations kids and their families anymore. You need to pull that judicial review application. Mm -hmm. You need to pay them what they deserve. And then the third thing is, is to really get them to stop this ongoing willful and reckless discrimination against yeah. kids. Uh, we got something called the Spirit Bearer Plan, which is to cost out all the inequalities that the people mm -hmm. are seeing on TV for First Nations kids, water, schools, daycare, juvenile justice. Let's pull those all up to equal footing so that those kids don't have to bear under those horrible effects of inequality. So we have a plan for that. Tell them to support the Spirit Bearer Plan. Tell them to drop that judicial review and do those seven ways to make a difference. For people who are in a financial position to help, um, Canada has asked for costs against any group that opposes them in federal court. Uh, so that means that uh, we may be paying Canada's legal costs. Oh, uh, and we're doing this pro bono. Um, and we've spent quite a bit of money just to getting things ready for the tent. So if they're able to make a donation to the Caring Society, that's appreciated. But most important is just reaching out and having your voice heard and say no. Not anymore. This will be the last generation of First Nations kids that Canada discriminates again. And I'm going to stand up and make sure that happens as a Canadian by telling them to implement the Spirit Bear Plan, drop the judicial review, and uh, comply with all those orders. Well, what I'll do is for this podcast in the description box, and when I put this on YouTube, I'll make sure that there's links right directly sure. to the seven free ways and you have like so many resources on your website and i really like that there's something for everybody yeah and for those who can come to the hearing more than welcome to come we'll be finding out what the location is i mean one of the things with the legal system as you know pam is yeah. they have their own ways of doing things so we don't <laughs> know exactly what courtroom in ottawa this thing will be heard at but we should know two weeks before that hearing so okay. that puts us a Right around um, see the 24, so we should be hearing probably this week where the hearing is at anyway, and we'll definitely put that up on our Caring Society website so people know. Well, I think this is a good place to end part one of our extended interview with Dr. Cindy Blackstock. Uh, I can't thank Cindy enough for everything that she's doing to always stand up for First Nation kids and the way she always reaches out to other people and works collaboratively. Um, I've always believed that we're stronger together. Thank you all for tuning into my show. I hope you've learned a lot from Cindy's update. 
Uh, I will post a link to her website in my description box so that you can learn more about the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society and the case that's ongoing. Make sure you also follow her on Twitter because she's uh, engaging in a Twitter series where she's providing people with updates, questions and concerns around the most recent legislation Bill C-92, the uh, Indigenous uh, Child Welfare Act, and that's in fact what we're going to be hearing from her in part two of our podcast, which we will hear a week from now. A lot more details, questions, and concerns. So if you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode, and always leave me your comments and show ideas in the comment section. Um, I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. But you can also follow me on a day-to-day basis on Instagram as Pam underscore Palmiter, or subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle really difficult political and legal issues. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliug.